HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and heritage. For more information, visit emmyusa.com. Time for Lunch is a new podcast from HRN for curious young eaters, where we focus on the serious questions. Aren't chickens tiny dinosaurs? We get to know our favorite foods in unexpected ways. We just like cheered like you would cheer for your classmate when they're round in second base in softball. And we just like, peach, 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 peach. Yay, thank you, peaches. Learn some new recipes and jokes. What does a boxer's mom put in his lunch? A knuckle sandwich. And load up on fun facts. Experts estimate that there are between one and 2,000 types of insects eaten around the world. So roll up your sleeves and dig in. Subscribe to Time for Lunch on your favorite podcast app so that you and your favorite young eater can catch up on the whole first season. New episodes of season two out each week. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Essie Bartels, founder of Essie Spice, spice blends that combine the seasonings of her native Ghana with the flavors from her travels around the world. And we just were discussing this. That's 36 countries, which is a lot of travels. Founded in 2013, Essie Spice is available at Whole Foods, across the Northeast, at multiple museums, and on Amazon. Essie, welcome. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Thank no, you. I'm so happy. The last time we were together um, feels like several years ago, but it was really just like, I mean, a couple of weeks January? before the whole, yeah, the whole lockdown and shutdown and pandemic happened. Doesn't that feel like forever ago? <laughs> yeah. Like, like, you know, I can't even describe. It's like a, a decade. I know. It, the last four or five months felt like forever. I know. So. But when you were um, 
so we were together and actually there's one of the episodes of In the Sauce is a recording of the panel that we did together um, for Whole Foods about, you know, highlighting some of their female founders. And I just thought you were so cool and so smart and um, so inspirational on the panel that um, I've been trying to get you back on. So I'm very happy that you're here. Thank you um, so much. Thank you yeah. for having me. No, my pleasure. Um, so I know that you grew up in Ghana. Um, and I, I remember asking you this question on the panel specifically, but I remember you saying that food just did not feel like an alternative, uh, you know, like an option for you as a career path. Um, and maybe just tell me a little bit about like what your life was like growing up and, um, you know, what, what you did think that you know, was the viable option for you for a career? Right. So I, my parents um, both had very challenging lives growing up um, with parents that didn't have a lot of money to offer them for education to go to school. And so for them, whatever it took to get us educated, they had to do, you know, they worked very hard. And so growing up in Ghana, uh, food was just something everybody did. Everybody, you know, I don't know, I think situations have changed now. A lot of people are not, you know, cooking as much right. and eating out a lot more. But when I was growing up, everybody cooked. So if you knew how to cook, I didn't think it was such a big deal. Right. But when people would talk about, oh, you you know, you really know how to cook. You cook, you know, your dishes are amazing. Da, da, da. I was just like, yeah, but everybody cooks. So right. what's the big deal? Um. And so I never took it seriously. And also, this is something I discuss a lot with a lot of my female friends in corporate and in different businesses, especially Africans and Black women, is that when you're growing up and you don't really see a lot of women in positions that you aspire to, mm -hmm. it seems that it's not possible or it's unattainable. Yep. And when I was growing up, it, there was nothing. There was no woman that I knew, or even men that were in food that were really heralded, and right. people looked up to and said, "Oh, you know, when I grow up, I want to be like this person." Yeah. You know, now they have Allison, who's doing Haven's Kitchen. So, yeah. <laughs> right. Say, oh, I want to go into food because someone like <laughs> Allison has all her products all over the country, right. maybe in Canada, etc. But prior to you. Maybe somebody had an idea for something similar, but because nobody was doing it, there was nothing to look up to. So that was yeah. the situation for me. I grew up wanting to work in corporate, travel the world, work for global companies. And that's exactly mm -hmm. what I did. Right. I came to college. I My major was international business and management. I studied in Pennsylvania. I also studied in the south of France. I got my degree, moved back, worked with... Hitachi, worked with Panasonic, and mm -hmm. then Unilever, traveling all over the world for work, wow. but also personally. So that's what I wanted to do. And I was living the life. I That was exactly the plan. Right. Um, that's, you know, it's funny. There's so many, I, I have so many founders come on here and it's like, it was the plan and it just didn't, it just wasn't, I didn't want it. You know, I mean, there's so many people that were on the track for their plan, you know, or what they thought they wanted 
or what their families wanted for them. Right. Now my dog's going to start barking. Um, but, you know, there's something, you know, and it's such a gift to be able to follow that little, that little kernel inside that's saying, you know what, maybe this isn't the plan or maybe this is the plan, but it's not what I want to do for the next 60 years. Uh-huh. Um, and so it sounds like you were able to follow that gut. Absolutely. So it wasn't that straightforward for me, especially because um, if you know anything about African parents, I mean, they don't want you to risk, take too much risk. They want kind of a sure path to success. And so, you know, they set you up so that you, in their minds, what they think is a sure path is, you know, getting a degree, you know, either working in corporate, being a lawyer or a doctor, or an engineer, an accountant, something yeah. where they know, you know, is a is a desired and right. needed career. And so you wouldn't have to worry. And, and that their so- and that their hard work, I would imagine, you know, is for a good end to some extent, right? The, exactly. Oh, right. Exactly. They want to see that, you know, the t- like how tangible is it? You know, when you so of course, for me, you know, I was, I started, I was working in corporate. I started small and then every year I would, you know, get a promotion. I was moving up. So mm-hmm. they were happy. Everything was great. And then it's like, oh, I'm doing a piece pipe on the side. And then it's like, oh, you know, um, I lost. I, so the, the shift happened when I actually decided to get another job, which was going to pay me more. Mm-hmm. And so my thought process in that was I wanted to bootstrap a C-Spice. I didn't want to get any, any investors in the beginning. Right. Um, I wanted to just, you know, get it to a certain point and then get an investor. And so, how did you even have a plan? I mean, I guess two questions. One sure. is I remember that um, you had a friend over and mm-hmm. you cooked and basically the friend was like, whatever you do, I just need you to do something with this because right. it's, it's that good. So Absolutely. I'd like to hear more about that. But also, like, where did you even know to look for advice? How did you even have a plan about investors or not investors? Or, how, you know, where did you even begin? Right. Good. That, those are good questions. So, again, um, as long as I recall, which is about maybe six, seven years old, I've been cooking. So I've it's for me, cooking is not a big deal. And I always have to catch myself, especially when I'm doing videos or giving instructions, because I assume people know because it's such a, it's so intuitive. Right. When I'm go, I'm doing something, I'm just running through it without realizing that not everybody has the same experience as me. And so I need to reel it back maybe 10 steps and take it a little bit slower. So, um, I had friends, uh, a really good friend of mine and his cousin who would come visit and he would always tell the cousin, um, as he makes a mean okra soup, this and this and this. So he, he had heard so much about, um, you know, Essie's food, Essie's food, Essie's food, Essie's food. So he's like, hey, he won't stop talking about the food. So can you please, I'm giving you a bucks. <laughs> I want you to cook me X, Y, and Z. Right. And I was like, oh, so I can actually make money cooking this stuff because the food is only going to cost me 200 bucks. So then right. my Uber is $300. So then that's when a little bit of a light bulb, you know, went off. And then he, mm-hmm. and after he had the food and he, you know, he tried it, he's like, you know what? I don't know. Like, you cannot sit on this talent 
Yeah. I don't know what you want to do with the, the talent, but if you want to start something, I'll help you. And so, you, what you said to me earlier was like, you very deliberately decided, unlike me, not to start a brick and mortar, not to right. have just a place where people could come because you very easily, right, could have gotten a small place, had a kitchen, had, you know, a, a beautiful restaurant where people came and experienced your food, but that decidedly was not what you wanted to do Absolutely not. because you understood scale. And I, I that's yeah. what's special about you because I, I mean, I can tell you, I definitely did not understand scale <laughs> when I started this whole thing. I'll, I didn't. And I'm still kind of wrapping my head around it. Mm. Um, but a lot of people, a lot of founders start with a restaurant or a cafe um, or, and then we and we end yeah, up having yeah. you know a cookie or a granola or a sauce that our customers really love, and then almost as an afterthought, we start mm-hmm. thinking like, well, this might be a good idea to, to sell. sell um, but you went directly to you know you you leapfrogged, and that's kind of yeah. what I'm curious about because right. it was it was it your business background? Like, what was that? How did you know? So. I think this is the reason why I tell people that no experience is useless. Mm-hmm. Um, I come from a family of businesswomen. My sister is a businesswoman. My mom is a businesswoman. My mom has been doing business for over 40 years before mm-hmm. I was born. And she would import and export food to the UK, to Abidjan, to Togo. And so growing up, that was mm-hmm. all the experience, you know, hidden somewhere right. in the back of my brain, right? Yep. And then I go to corporate and I'm working with um, Panasonic, I'm working with Hitachi, I'm working mm-hmm. with Unilever and they are working with products. Yeah. They don't have brick and mortar. Right. And they can reach every single part of the universe. Yeah. Unilever's products are in every country. I grew up with Unilever products. Right. And then I come here to the US and I'm working with Unilever and I go to the UK and you have Unilever products and I yeah. go to Thailand and you have Unilever products. So yeah. I think in the back of my mind, whether I realized it or not, that part of my training and that part of um, growth and strategy was already there. Totally. Also, yeah. one of the reasons what, that deterred me from having a brick and mortar is that initial investment that mm-hmm. I didn't have. Yep. And also I was thinking this thing is not going to go anywhere anyway. So what's the point in putting all this? <laughs> no, that right. was my thought yeah. process. And I, I'm right. being honest. Yeah. Uh, it's not going to go anywhere anyway. So why would I put, you know, into rent, right? $200,000 yeah. into rent and hiring people and training people. Yeah. And also what would happen to my corporate job? Because in my mind, I'm going to do this on the side forever right. and still keep my corporate job, have my insurance, make six figures, all of mm-hmm. this stuff. Like that's, that's, that's how my mind was working. Yeah. So what can I do that I, what, how do I get my message, my business, the plan across to people without having to invest so heavily in yep. with my time, energy, and cash? Makes a lot of sense. That's, that's, yeah. that's how no. that started. Totally a great answer. And a follow-up to that question is you just said, um, get your message out. You didn't say get your products out or get your flavors out. Mm. Um, and I'm just kind of curious 
what what was the message you were trying to get out? And is that the same message, you know, six years later? And, you know, how, how are you, I guess, telling that message through the spices and the sauces? Absolutely. So my message is, frankly, I mean, of course, I want my products to do well and all right. of that. But I want to make Afri- African food famous. Yeah. Doesn't matter where it's coming from. Doesn't matter if it's from Botswana, if it's from Kenya, if it's from Zimbabwe, if it's from Senegal. I want to make African food famous. So whether it's me or it's um, Chef Pierre from Yolele or mm-hmm. it's um, Yemisi from uh, Egunsi Foods, it doesn't yeah. matter. We have to get African food famous. And the reason why we need to do that is getting back to our roots again. Um, as we all know, Africa is the cradle of civilization. That's where yeah. everything, everyone, all of art, all of history, everything comes from there. So for a very long time, we haven't traced back even, of course, culture, food, music, all of that. Mm-hmm. But then nobody's been focusing on food. Yeah. Why we're eating what we're eating, why we're using the oils we're using, you know, how beneficial some of these grains that are ancient, yeah. um, teff and fonio are to your diet. Um, why African diets before a lot of these foreign diets were introduced to African diets, so rich, um, yeah. microbi- you know, with the microbiomes that, you know, we grow and how it's good for your gut and all of that, you yeah. know, so it's not just, you know, about Essie Spice, honestly, it's a yeah. very big picture of making our oils, our butters, our, our, you know, everything famous. Grains, and, yeah. And bigger than that is to hear it from Africans. Right. Much bigger than that. Because, Allison, you and I know that what happens majority of the time is a lot of Africans like myself and others don't have the funds, don't have the yeah. wherewithal, don't have the education, don't have the expertise to start something and see you through the way you have and the way I have, maybe because of exposure, education, connections, yeah. money, whatever it is, right? But they have the the idea and they have the drive and they have the passion. Um, and then what will happen is, you know, foreigners that have the money yeah, will absolutely. travel to South Africa, will travel to Ghana, will travel to whatever. And then be like, oh, or even, you know, for example, like some of our fabrics that are being bootlegged mm-hmm. by the Chinese. Right. And, you know, they would come in, they see, oh, this is actually a really good idea that Africans are not capitalizing on. So right. let's capitalize on it and then let's make money off of it. And then the story changes because the way a Chinese will tell us an African story, mm-hmm. it's not the same way an African will tell an African story. So... Um, that's what I'm hoping that my voice can do for other people is if you have an idea and you're African, you know, let's push to make sure that it's the African voice that's heard and not somebody else filtering that voice for us. No, I, I mean, that brings up a really good point and it's something I've been, you know, for people who I listen to the podcast kind of consecutively as they come out, as opposed to sort of picking the topics, they know that I've been thinking a lot about appropriation and, Mm. um, you know, they, people have been hearing me, you know, 
struggling a little bit with being, you know, a white American woman with a global brand, uh, you know, that's basically, you know, trying to introduce and amplify flavors um, and recipes from all over the world because I believe in a global pantry and I believe that these things do break down barriers um, and I believe that people should have access to all of these flavors without having to spend four hours making a sauce. Yep. Um, that being said, you know, I am also aware that it's, it has to be done respectfully yes. and honestly and empathically that we have to, you know, make sure we credit and amplify and compensate. Um, and it's, never going to please everyone. And, you know, we're kind of aware of that, but I think that the message that you're, you know, that you're putting out there, which is these things are expensive to get off the ground. And if yeah. they, and if there is like what you were missing as a kid, if there is representation, right. And, mm-hmm. and, and people can watch you get, get these flavors into the world and start this business, you know, with the resources that you have, um, there will be more, you Absolutely. know, there will be people following suit. And plus they're so delicious that like <laughs> you're sharing something amazing with the world, you know, and yeah. uh, bringing flavors that a lot of American palates haven't necessarily experienced and nor would they, right? I mean, right. I don't know how many people are going to get to travel, you know, to Ghana and in their um, lifetime. Yeah. And I mean, just the way you talk about the just the flavors. And so I want I want to segue into that a little bit because okay. I would love you to give me, you know, just like three to five kind of notes about what sort of in your mind sort of signifies the food of Ghana. Like what are the flavors or the or the senses or, you know, what, what just comes to mind if I said Ghana food equals, you know, heat. heat. <laughs> <laughs> Ghana food equals heat, you know? Yeah. They, they always say if you're, if you're, if your food is not, you know, burning, it, you're not eating. And it's crazy so because funny. in Ghana, when you're eating, um, the food has to be hot. Right. And it has to be spicy. So it's right. a, it's a it's a two factors that's killing you, but that's the only way we eat. And part of the reason why um, there's two things. Part of the reason why you know historically we have to have our food hot is to prevent it from spoilage and from mm-hmm. you know bacteria because right. of our our ecosystem and our environment and the weather and you know the fact that we're on the equator, humidity, mm-hmm. all of that you know, you attract a lot of either bacteria, viruses, all of that. So everybody eats their food piping hot, mm-hmm. right? Um, that's the first part. And then with the spice, isn't it crazy how um, anthropologists have done this research and they're like, the people who need the spice, which are in the temperate regions, which is mm-hmm. Europe and Asia, but especially like in the mountainous regions, they don't eat hot food. Mm-hmm. It's the people in the really, really hot places like Jamaica and the islands and, you know, West Africa and, you know, uh, Southern Asia where it's really hot 
we are the people that eat the hot foods. And why is that? Because when you eat very spicy foods, you sweat. Right. And, and it cools you down. Cool your body's temperature. Yeah. So we're doing yeah. all these things, but we don't know why we're doing. We're like, ah, no, right. no, it has to be spicy. So <laughs> you know, a lot of Ghanaian food is very spicy. Lots of um, smoked meats, um, uh-huh. lots of preserved preserved meats. So a lot of brining, a lot of smoking, a lot of starches. You know, because traditionally, um, historically, we've been um, uh, a lot of uh, farming has been done. A lot of um, fishing. Uh, mm-hmm. Of course, you know, this is the 20th century. Not everybody's farming. Not everybody is going fishing, but we needed a lot of carbs to get, you know, work done yep. during the day. And yep. so a lot of our food is like soups with starches. So with rice or with po- cocoa yams and yams, either yeah. pounded or boiled with plantains. Mm. Um, and we have different ways of making it, but a lot of um, rich layered stews and yeah. soups. Um, that's yeah. pretty much our our dishes. And you can find a lot of what we eat in Ghana and all of West Africa and right. even a lot of other African parts. So you can go to, let's say, Uganda and they have very similar things. They call it ugali. You go to Ghana and it's kinke, but it's all made with corn. Um, yeah. And so it's, you know, it's, it's that experience of, you know, use what you have but then as you travel across the continent you find very very similar yep. um cuisine uh, well right i mean as we've talked about on this show before because the the border lines between all these different places are are rather arbitrary to begin with right arbitrary. i mean someone just you know, came in and took some, a some guys line and yeah one time they said oh Right. You, know, you take this part, you take this part. And that's yeah. how they drew lines. So people yeah. would joke about it and say, oh, my wife was was right. my wife one minute and now she's in another country and she's no longer, you know, right. she's now Burundian and I'm now Ugandan or whatever. Yeah. So, Crazy. Um, With all the roads leading out, mm-hmm. you know, that's exactly. super messed up. Okay. Mm-hmm. Essie, we're going to take a little break and we're going to come back in a minute and hear more about the business. Today's program is brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and heritage. Since the early 1900s, Emmy has been a passionate supporter of small farmers, cheesemakers, and family tradition. They believe in sustainable agriculture and respect for the people, land, and animals that make their business possible. Remaining dedicated to tradition, they strive to lead the industry in innovation ensuring they bring you only the highest quality, best tasting cheese from Switzerland. Emmy is best known for being the number one importer of Swiss Gruyere in the United States, in addition to many other specialty cheeses, including premium Kaltbach cave-age cheeses, Appenzeller, Tete de Moine, and traditional Emmentaler. For more information, visit emmyusa.com. I'm back with Essie Bartels, founder of Essie Spice. Um, so I want to go back for a minute because now let's go back to, you know, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to do this side gig and I'm going to make some spice blends. And how did you know what to do next? I mean, where, how did you, when did you start, I assume you started making them at home or in some sort of, I mean, you didn't package. How did you even, what was step one? So step one, um, I knew that I was going to do the business. So step one was 
to get a business license. I just decided, okay, let me get the business license. What am I going to call it? Right. And I think I was talking to my sister and she, and they used to um, laugh at me though, because I used to use spices in everything. Mm -hmm. I, my spice, my spice drawer is always full with spices from everywhere. And they would always say, Oh, I see it's spicy, miss spicy, miss spicy. (laughs) So it became, I, I was like, oh, don't you think people will think I'm so full of myself calling it? And they were like, no, but it's Essie Spice. Right. Like, this is your spice. Like, you, you're you telling people about your spice that you use, you know. So it's not you being full about full of yourself, you yeah. know. So that's how the name came about. And then um, I decided to, so my, my friend who decided to support me, enough money to get the business license. Amazing. I started to get um, a logo because I, I knew I now knew a name. Right. Um, and then um, just getting some ideas and uh, fleshing it out. So we have four products with a fifth product coming very soon, but we Fun. currently have four products. So the way the, the first product, which um, I call Tamarind O, mm-hmm. is... Um, it's it's crazy because I feel like a lot of things that happen in my life are cyclical. You know, they go and then they come back and then they yeah. go and then they come back. And then it's like, you know, one full circle. So I grew up eating tamarind um, um, fruits literally directly from the tree. And I didn't even know what they were because in the South, they don't grow very much. They grow right. a lot more in the North. And tamarind plant is actually indigenous to uh, West Africa. But a lot of people, especially in the South, don't even use it to cook. It's mostly when you go up to the North. Right. And I grew up in the South and I'm from the South. So, you know, I didn't even know you could use it to cook. I just, I used to call it the candy fruit. So I'll just say, I'm going to pick up the candy from the from the tree. Mm-hmm. So then I go to Mexico to visit a friend. And we, when we're leaving, she says, I'm going to buy you all this candy. Because I, she gave me this coconut candy. And I said, get me a couple of those. And then she also got me tamarind candies on top of the coconut candies. And I, as soon as I tasted it, yeah, I like, knew oh, that right. I tasted it before, but I didn't know how to explain to her. And she would say, tamarindo, tamarindo. And I'm like, what is that? She's like, it's a fruit, it's a fruit. So I come back to the U.S. I do a little research. I see what it is. I'm like, oh, my God, this is what I've been eating, you know, since mm-hmm. I was a kid. And then, the, you know, tamarind usually is a bit sour. So right. I didn't want to, you know, a lot of it, uh, the candy, they put a lot of sugar on it. So I didn't want to throw it away. But I also was like, I can't eat all of this candy. It has too much sugar. So then I melted it down with a little bit of water and put it because it was still like a really thick syrup. Mm-hmm. So then I put that on chicken wings and it was amazing. Mm-hmm. You know, I think tamarind is like a, it's a key ingredient in like Worcestershire and barbecue too. Uh, I mean, yes. it, it's all derivative obviously from, you know, as you yeah, were saying, um, you know. Some of them, some of them had made it without, but now people are seeing that flavor profile mm-hmm. and seeing how it translates so well in barbecue and in uh, in Worcestershire and they're, yep. they're actually incorporating that. But I don't think that was the case, you know, maybe 30, 40, 50 years ago. No, but it was from my understanding mm. um, when African slaves started introducing Absolutely. a bunch of cuisine into the South in Absolutely. the United States and you know. Absolutely. And yep. it's, the same, it's the same thing. I mean, 
when you do a little bit of research, you're going to find how, you know, literally across the South, almost all the food that is eaten in the South straight from the West of mm-hmm. Africa. Yep. People say, talk about gumbo. The only thing that you have in gumbo that you don't have um, in okra soup or okra stew in, in West Africa is literally palm oil because right. palm doesn't grow in, in the South. Right. So where were they going to get the palm oil from to add to the gumbo? Right. Everything else is in there. Everything yep. that we add to okra soup or okra stew in, in Africa that they don't have here is things that they couldn't find. Right. Everything else they put in there. So, yep. um, you know, I did that. I, I did that with the tamarind. I always used to make a chili sauce and mm-hmm. I would keep it and freeze it and use it for later because I just didn't want to, again, save myself time in the kitchen. Right. Yep. I didn't want to be in the kitchen every day. So sometimes I would make it ahead of time so that whenever we're ready, oh, we have the chili ready to go. And everybody loved it. And my sister's like, oh, why don't you add mango to it? Because I went to this restaurant and (laughs) they had mango habanero. And I was like, okay. So I added the mango. So that's how my mango chili medley came about. But how did you even, did you find, I mean, at this point you had to have someone else package it because it's, you can't make the, I mean, unless you were just making it like jam in your house and boiling jar. I mean, and did you have anyone to buy it yet? Like, oh, so um, <laughs> when I when I started, I found out that I couldn't make it at home because right. of regulations and lots of rules. So I had yeah. to get um, unless my kitchen was commercial, which it isn't, and so I had to find a commercial kitchen. So I found one actually very close to my house. We were making them in like ten gallon pots, mm-hmm. um, and uh, that um, that uh, location helped me with you know getting uh, some bottles. Uh, We had already worked with the designer on the labels. I had sent my products to Cornell to get certified for this process. And then eventually we got inspected by the FDA to get our FDA certification for for health guidelines. And then did you have a customer yet? I mean, were there stores that... So the reason why I had customers, and this is 2013, when social right. media was not as saturated as it is now. Right. Um, when I started Essie uh, Spice, all the people that had been following me on Facebook and loved my dinners that I would mm-hmm. cook and ask me if it was from a restaurant, mm-hmm. just like my friend and his cousin who gave me that initial mm-hmm. money to get my my business license, etc. There were a lot of people that will come to my page organically and be like, where's this food? How can right. I get it? <laughs> da, 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 da. So all right. these people were following me because of the food. And right. so when I did eventually say, Hey, I don't have a restaurant. I don't have this. I don't have that. But I have but, the sauce, and mm-hmm. we can ship it to you online. And you can um, you can make the dishes that I'm making at home yourself. Right. Um, so those people were my initial my initial target Customers, and my initial yeah. um, following, and it was very organic because they had already seen that um, yeah. transition from me cooking dinners and taking a picture. I mean, these were like, you know, your iPhone one or whatever you want right. to no, yeah, take a photo right. and post it to your page. And everybody's like, oh my God, where is this? Is this the restaurant? You know, show me. Da, da, da. And so that's how it started. <laughs> and I had right. a Shopify um, page. So I just posted everything on there and people will order and I will ship it to them. 
And when did you know that you had an actual business that wasn't going to be a side gig anymore, that wasn't going to be friends of friends ordering things from you? Right. So again, remember I told you how earlier, how I wasn't taking a ceasefire seriously to the point of me leaving on a six month project to South Africa, living my best life, acting like nothing was at stake, just enjoying Mm -hmm. myself and working, you know, hopping from plane to plane. That was, that was the life I was living. Um, And then I came back and the the whole uh, plan was after that project, I was going to get a promotion. So Mm -hmm. when I got back, the the conversation about the promotion just all of a sudden evaporated and it was like it, it never happened and it's like mm. I, I went to do this project because you guys told me right I would be promoted when I get back and then everybody was like it was like crickets wow so um but everything I feel like is divine everything yep. worked for me not against me mm-hmm. and so because they didn't talk about that I got recruited to another company who was going to pay me, I believe at the time, $40,000 more. They were going to give me a higher position, all of that. Now I got to that company and realized it was the worst thing I ever did. Biggest Uh, mistake of my life. It was horrible. The the culture was horrible. mm -hmm. You know, it was just a a horrible work environment. My commute went from eight minutes to almost two hours every day Uh, in the car. Right. Um, And it's not that far. It's just a lot of traffic. Yeah. And so I was miserable. And I think they saw that I was miserable. And I'm sure that because, and I also wasn't trained very well. I wasn't trained very well. My boss's wife had an accident. And so he wasn't in the office to train me and they didn't replace him with anyone to train me. Mm -hmm. And I went from being somebody who was interacting and working with stakeholders on a face-to-face and um, uh, basis to somebody having to sit by a computer every day with a software that I hadn't been trained on. So of course I'm going to fail. Yeah. And And get depressed. Right. (laughs) Exactly. So I was tanking at the job. And so after the three month mark, they were like, "Mm, this is not working. We're going to let you go. Right. So when they did that, literally when it happened in the same breath that I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe this is happening. In that same breath, I was like, oh, Uh this is like probably I can't believe this is happening. Yeah, I was so elated. And so that was when literally I called my parents. I'm like, I've lost my job, you know, but I'm not tired. (laughs) I don't want to apply for a new job. I had offers at the time from Mondelez, from L'Oreal, and I think one more company. And I told myself and I asked God and I'm very, I'm somebody who um, uh, is very, very, um, I believe in God and I, I, you know, that's where my faith um, resides. And so I literally put it to him. I said, God, I'm going to give myself six months Mm -hmm. of undivided attention to SE Spice because this whole time I'm doing it, but I'm not really doing it. I'm I'm putting it's not a part-time job. I mean, that's, that's the reality. Exactly. But I'm not really putting the effort. I'm, you know, People, you know, stores will ask for meetings and I'm not available because I'm at work. Yeah. I'm busy. And so all of this, I said, you know what, in this six months, I'm not going to accept any jobs. Mm -hmm. I'm going to give everything 100% to Essie Spice. If it doesn't, if I don't see something to tell me that I need to be doing this after the six months, then I'll take the jobs. Yep. 
And in that six months, I got into Whole Foods. Yeah. And I got on Time magazine. And right after that, I got into Forbes magazine. Yeah. And I said, God, okay, I hear got you. Got it. Great. <laughs> and, and there you go. And that's where, um, that's where we are, yeah. And so, I mean, a couple more questions before we yeah. have to wrap up. But um, where, where are you now? I mean, we were having a little talk about, you know, I think both of us are – so, I mean, listeners know I did close the cooking school. Um right. Last month, it was just never going to be able to work with social distancing and the economy and all of that. And, um, you know, it's definitely, it's sad uh, Mm -hmm. for sure. And also, you know, I'm very aware that we have a product that is booming at the moment because people are cooking more than ever and they are bored of cooking the same things that they know how to make and Mm. that's on their routine. And they're looking for ways to shortcut flavor and ways to save work. And, and, and both you and I have products that help people do that. So I guess, um, my, my big question is sort of like, where are you now? And like, you know, you said there's a new product coming out. How has COVID, affected business? Has it changed anything in your thought process? Um, has it helped you connect with more consumers? Like, I'd love to hear just sort of like what's going on with the business now. Sure. No, absolutely. I feel like same with you. Um, the minute people were home and Mm -hmm. being quarantined and realizing that they needed to stay away from other people, but they also wanted that same restaurant experience. They wanted Mm -hmm. to have really good flavors. They wanted to enjoy their food Mm -hmm. and not just have chicken with salt and pepper Mm -hmm. as most people do. Um, They wanted something else. And so what we noticed is a lot of the people who have ordered in the past started reordering. Mm -hmm. And then I guess they started telling people and then, you know, people then started to notice us as we started posting and doing what I started doing even more during the quarantine, because I was also not as as much. So I started doing, um, um, uh, I would say uh, doing live cooking sessions on mm-hmm. stories. And I saw the way people were really tuning in and people were really loving that. So a lot more people were like, oh, so if I got SC Spice, this is how I can use it. Right, right. And so that really, I feel like changed the game a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then um, Black Lives Matter yep. happened. And you know, everybody was like, how can we support black business? How can we give back to black business? How can we elevate black voices? How can we support women that are doing the work or have been doing the work? Because there's going to be a lot of businesses that are all of a sudden going to start because black lives matter. Mm -hmm. But we've been telling everybody black lives matter for years now. And so People recognize that and then it became cyclical. It's just this person telling this person, you know, we're getting on Shape Magazine, we're on um, Food and Wine, uh, sorry, Food Network, and then it just kept going. Um, So being at home has helped a lot. And the truth is, 
Um, I think a lot, I don't think it will go away even no. after the pandemic is over. Yeah. Because a lot of people, um, you know, we all enjoy eating out. I, I'm probably like the number one person <laughs> of eating out. But then the thing is, um, I'm, I'm somebody who cooks all the time for my yeah. business. So I, I like to do a little bit of an escape, but then I have the option when I want to have those flavors yeah. at home, you know, I can do that. And I don't yep. have to slave in the kitchen for hours and hours and yep. hours because I exactly. have my thoughts. Yeah, that's exactly. what I wanted to be able to create for people to cut their time in the kitchen, yep. give them the flavors that they're looking for, you know, very powerfully. And also in a way that they probably wouldn't experience um, because they haven't, you know, tried anything that's West African. Right. Um, and um, yeah, also food that is healthy, good for you, clean, ingredients mm -hmm. and all of it, just putting yeah. all of that joy in a bottle. Amazing. Yeah. It is like joy in a bottle. <laughs> um, okay. Last question. Sure. What, you know, I think the, the bulk of people that seem to listen to this podcast are, I, I imagine earlier stage, uh, than we are. Mm. Um, and I always kind of refer to this as like the, how the hell am I going to build this as mm -hmm. opposed to like how I built this? Because, right. you know, it's kind of like a big fancy cookbook. I, that's just intimidating and the food mm -hmm. looks too beautiful and it's not going to make me feel like I've got the confidence or the skills to be able to do it. So right. I want it to be super practical for people listening. Sure. Um, what do you wish someone had told you? you know, in 2013, 2014, like what's the advice that you wish you had had when you started this whole thing um, that you would want to share with listeners? Um, I think the advice I would give people is do your research. Mm. Do your research. Do like research will get you so far. Mm -hmm. um, you should be I know you're not going to know everything, but you should be an, the expert on what you're doing. Yeah. Um, and also stay in your lane. I tell people this all the time. And yeah. I think, I think I'm pro like, I'm probably like the most cliche thing that I say <laughs> to everybody on my personal and business page is to stay in your lane. And when I say this, I mean, have focus. Yeah. So when you're not focused, you confuse the consumer. So they mm -hmm. don't know what you're doing. Yeah, But if you have that voice where you're telling that story and they can fall in love with that story and not just you trying to make a dollar, mm -hmm. you know, there needs to be a story to what you're doing. Right. And it has to, I feel like it needs to be more than just you. And um, that's what people fall in love with, at least for yeah. me. And so no, I think that's great. focus and staying in your lane and doing the research because you're going to have to find, um, you're going to have to do research about yeah. your products. You're going to have to find out how the FDA works. You're going to have to find out um, how trademarks work. You're going to, mm -hmm. you know, don't sign anything that you haven't right. said. Get a lawyer ahead of time. Yeah. I mean, these seem like very silly things, but no, they're, they're not. They're, they're not. really not because- yeah. You're going to do a lot of work. And if you don't protect your work, somebody can easily come in and just mess it up when yep. you're like five, 10 years in because yep. you didn't do the work in the beginning. So yeah. focus, um, there's going to be a lot of things that will come at you. Yeah. 
a lot of failures unless you have like I don't know a million dollars off the bat and you can hire even then everybody to do whatever it I didn't have that and most people don't have yeah. that and so if you don't have that and you have to do a lot of the work yourself you're going to have to do a lot of research even the people I know that haven't had to do the work themselves there's something that you miss when you don't it's when like you if you're a baby and you don't crawl you know, and you just start walking. You miss all of these developmental you milestones, you know? Yeah. You miss all of it. Yeah. And that yeah. example you just gave is perfect. It's like, you know, let's say you, you're, you know, this high and mighty socialite and you have a kid and you don't raise your child yourself. Yep. You're giving the child all the money, all the education, all the access, all the whatever, but you're not raising your child. Your child is being raised by a nanny and a tutor and a this and right. a that. That's not your child. Right. You know? Right. And so that's the same way with whether you your, have money your product, or product, baby. You have, to, <laughs> you have to have your skin in it. I know. You have to be involved. You have to be um, inquisitive about it. You know, whatever it is, whether it's the legal aspect, whether it's where you're sourcing your ingredients, yeah. whether it's how the ingredients are coming to you, um, you know, even your market size and market, your consumer yeah. and all of that, you know, all of that stuff on the all other side too. So yeah. Who am I marketing to? You know, who is going to buy my stuff? Why right. would they buy it? Will they continue to buy it? Right. Um, you know, I have, of course, I have a business background, so I have a little mm -hmm. bit of that experience. And then, you know, both education and business and also working in corporate for 10 years, that experience, as much as people think it's not related to what I'm doing. No, it's, it's related. exactly yeah. related. I'm just yep. ordering things from across oceans. And it's like, this is what I used to do for my company is just that I had a team of somebody who would pay the shipper, do the, right. the, uh, the documents <laughs> and this and that and that. But now I'm doing everything myself. Yep. And so yep. that's what I mean by you have to have some visibility this way. If somebody's not doing it well, you can tell them, hey, Allison, that, that you know, you're not supposed to do it this way. You yep. know. But if you don't yep. know that it's not being done well, then it can be done anyway. Yep. And so. Amazing. That's what I can, I can give, uh, the advice I can give to anyone. It's, that's no, it's great out. advice. I think the sort of trifecta of trust your gut, but mm. do your research mm. and, you know, know, know what, know your focus um, and don't get blown around by, you know, someone says, oh, you should do that. Oh, you should make that. Oh like, my goodness. You know, the that's advice. a good, I'm that's telling a good you, little, yeah. You're going to get everybody giving you their opinion. Mm -hmm. You should do this. You shouldn't do that. You should do this. You shouldn't do that. I listen to people who've walked in the shoes that I've walked in. Yeah. And even with that, I still have to see how that will affect me personally yep. because nobody can be you, you are than you, right? Yep. You are the most you there is. <laughs> and so mm -hmm. if you cannot have your voice um, shown in your product and understand who you are, it's not going to translate. And yep. so you can get advice from the top people all over the world for whatever it is that you need advice on. But at the end of the day, you need to sit down and see how that, translates into your brand and yeah. how that's going to work for you. And at that point you have a, you have a product and yeah. you have a product that's going to, you know, do well. 
Amazing. Essie, thank you so much. Um, listeners, Essie Spice, uh, they're all super joyful in a bottle. Um, they're spicy. They're savory. Uh, it's been really fun just kind of experimenting and playing. Um, we also have a new engineer. Ooh. You guys have been hearing me for two years saying, thank you, Matt. You're the best engineer in the world. <laughs> um, occasionally, Matt makes an appearance and he like chimes in on something. But Matt, we love you. But Jess is our new best engineer in the world um, starting today. So welcome, Jess. Thank you. Thank you. Um, engineering these podcasts was something when we were in person, but it's gotten, I think, even more complicated not in person. Um, I am also not very good at the technical piece of all of this. So thank you in advance for having a lot of patience. Um, I will be back next week with another episode of In the Sauce. I love all of your LinkedIn messages and your DMs and your Instagram everythings. Um, I'm so glad the podcast is resonating with so many of you. And I appreciate so many of you reaching out to me about closing the school um, so much love to all of you. So thanks for listening and I'll be back next week. Thanks, Essie. Thank you. Thank you so much. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.